This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Subway Franklin. The Rourke Capital Group has purchased Subway. Their empire continues to grow. They're going to be in the same family now with Jimmy John's. A little, little. Uh, it's a, it's a big company to absorb. You, a, you a Subway fan? Yeah, I, I, I was a Subway fan. I think I've, I've, I've drifted away. There's so many options now on the, on the kind of the sandwich side that I'm ready. Let's, let's put it this way, Joe. I'm ready for a reinvigorated Subway brand. It's just, it's. I love Firehouse, and like I have a Firehouse across from a Subway. That's a tough call for me, man. And you know, Jersey Mike's. We've got a bunch of those around here. You know, we've got the Jimmy John's. We've got all kinds. There's just so it's it's such a crowded marketplace. I do love a meatball sub. A meatball sub at Subways is good and legit. You can get the extra cheese on there. Um, that was kind of my go-to back in the day. Yeah, it's super interesting uh, for me on on kind of the non-food side. You know, the, the work family uh, focus brands among them. You know, seem to have pretty good franchise or franchisee relationships for the most part. And uh, Subway's had some some struggles in that in that space uh, for for a number of years. So it'd be interesting to see how their how their uh, their culture can probably change. You know, what what impact their culture has on that particular uh, aspect of it. But uh, Congratulations to the Rourke team. Uh, big brand like Subway, it could, it could use a little Rourke love, uh, that's for sure. And on that note, let's do the show. May I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. The National Labor Relations Board has turned union elections upside down, issuing new regulations around quickie ambush elections and instituting a de facto card check rule, making union organizing significantly easier. We'll discuss the ramifications for all employers, large and small. And the world of alcohol continues to change, both from consumer tastes and trends to laws and regulatory compliance. We're joined by our old colleague, Sean Kelly, now Executive Vice President of Marketing Operations for ABC Fine Wines and Spirits, to get his perspective on where the market's going and how regulators may follow. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Mr. Coley, it was a big week last week at your favorite agency, the National Labor Relations Board. They basically took the union organizing process and put it on its head, upside down. And now you really don't even have to have an election to be to have a, a, a recognized union in, the, in, in a restaurant or store or whatever facility. What did the NLRB do last week, Franklin? Yeah, critics are calling it basically an administrative card check, if, if people remember the old card check legislation. And the the... Criticisms are so loud that the board actually directly responded to that in in media saying this is not an administrative card check, but it it sure reads a a lot like that. And so there were a couple of things. There were ambush election rules were finalized, and then there was a decision in the CMEX case, which basically gives us de facto card checks, what I'm going to call it. And the NRB around that actually, they put an infograph out that showed what the process is now on a moving forward basis as a result of this new precedent, this new decision. 
Uh, the short version of it is that once a majority of workers signal their support for a union, the employer must immediately recognize and begin bargaining with the union. So to to rewind the tape as to where we were before this decision, you know, the way that it's historically kind of rolled is, you know, there'll be some union organizing and, you know, maybe employers get a whiff of it and start, you know, an education campaign pushing back. But a lot of the times the union will file an election petition and that's when the employer kind of springs into action. That is going to be too late under this decision. At that point, if a majority of workers have, you know, signaled support for the union, the employer will have to immediately begin bargaining and kind of recognize the union as the bargaining agent for those workers. I mean, just it just bypasses the whole it just bypasses the whole process. And and, and what happens, Franklin, if if the employer says, no, I'm not going to recognize this this union, this 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 bargaining unit, are they automatically slapped with an unfair labor practice charge? So in the infograph that the NLB put out, there's kind of two course, there's three courses of action. One we just mentioned the employer can recognize a union and automatically begin bargaining with the union. The next course of action in the infograph is the employer can file an election petition for the union. Now, we are accustomed to the union filing the election petition, but it's always been the case that the employer or the union could file the election petition. In this circumstance, you're, you're basically guilty until proven innocent you know, you have to, the employer would have to file the election petition to trigger an election to basically, you know, disprove that, you know, not a majority of workers are supporting the union. The third kind of tranche, if you will, in the, in, in the infograph is the employer can basically not recognize the union. And, and essentially the way the, the infograph flows and what the NRB is saying is you're basically verging off into unfair labor practice territory there. And there's a good chance. And, you know, in the decision, they kind of spell this out. There's a good chance that you could spoil, you could poison the workplace in such a way that the NLRB determines that the union is going to be automatically recognized without an election, which, by the way, has always been the case. If there's egregious conduct on behalf of the employer during the, the, the election process, even before filing an election petition, but certainly during the election petition process, the board can say that the employer's contact is so poison the well that we're going to deem that you know the union is automatically recognized without an election. That's always been an option, but this is really putting in force that they're going to default to that kind of on, on a moving forward basis. At least that's the way I think most people are reading and interpreting the decision. Man, that's, this is, uh, I, 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 I think the audience needs to have an appreciation for how big of a sea change this is in, uh, in the process in law. Franklin, what's, what's going to be the reaction? I mean, I, I assume the United States Chamber of Commerce is going to go to the mattresses on this uh, with allies in Congress. I mean, where, where does, What's the political play in D.C. right now? Well, I expect, number one, there's going to be tons of lawsuits flying immediately on this and probably ambush election rules, which we can talk about next. So I think that there's a whole legal process that's going to 
play out here probably over many, many years. But you can't like bank on that. You've got to start operating like this is the law of the land today. Similarly, there will be a political process. Congresswoman Fox at Ed and, and Workforce in the House is going to, you know, first off, everyone knew that this was coming, you know, this return to Joy Silk, you know, is has has been under discussion for, I mean, we've talked about on this podcast for a year or two. I mean, it, you know, so everyone knew this was coming. Congressional uh, members of Congress knew this was coming. They've already been pushing back in the NRB. There will be increased pushback. They will try to put riders on funding bills. And I think we have a big omnibus funding bill at the at the end of the year, but don't quote me on that. I don't know if it captures labor or not. But there will be a political process to, to box in uh, activity in this space. There will be lawsuits. It's going to be all out. This fundamentally changes labor relations in the U.S., Joe. And, and so I expect this is like, Point one a in pushing back on the NLRB agenda for every employer business group, um, uh, you know, in DC and everywhere else for that matter. Boy, it also it's amazing that something could make ambush elections look like a, a number two, but uh, it, it's it's almost more important than the ambush election stuff. So get into that. So what ha- what do they do with regard to the ambush election piece, Franklin? So in that low infograph, if we're going the election, you know route. Yeah, now you have a return to the 2014 rules promulgated by the Obama administration, which again, put a lot, the the big thing is it puts a lot of the objections and, you know, the, the parts to kind of slow down the process and complain about the union's conduct or draw attention to the union's conduct or stop the union's conduct. It puts all those objections and all that stuff to basically the beginning or the end of the election process. So once an election petition is filed, now it is really important in, and the name's escaping me, but that first document that you submit to the board, you have to be buttoned up and lay out any concerns you have in that very first document and size of bargaining unit and all this other, but you have to put all your objections kind of loaded into that. Once the election process starts, it's going to go super quick. You can't stop it or slow it down with raising objections during the process. So you're talking about uh, an extended, you know, multi-month process is now on a, you know, two-week kind of timeline. And all your objections now have to be kind of loaded at the end of the process in, in terms of the employer. And so it's just a much more expedited process. It, it is expected. and you know, I don't know. I, I think probably is mixed results in terms of um, how it bore out when this went into effect last time. And it was hung up in the courts for a while, too, before it was ultimately rescinded. But I, I think it was mixed results and how much this helped organizing efforts. But if you think back to 2014, like the atmospherics in the national environment around labor organizing is dramatically different today. There's a lot more wind at the union's backs, not to mention the CMEX decision, like, but, but just in organizing in general, we have a lot more organizing that is happening truly organically than to 2014. And so I do think these rules, especially when you take them in, in working in collaborate, collaboration with the CMEX decision is going to like hypercharge, you know, 
union elections. It's just going to make it a lot easier overall for unions to be successful in the ground. There's just no doubt. I, I suspect over the weekend, there was a lot of champagne corks being popped in the, in the labor community space with these two decisions that came out at the end of last week, just un, unbelievable, unprecedented. And uh, to your point, I, I think it's good counsel that restaurant companies, whether they're big brands or individual operators, should conduct themselves and act as if these rules are the law of the land now, for which they, they are at your point, you know, they'll, they'll be tied up in litigation for sure. But right now, you, 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 you should conduct yourself as, as if a, a, a union could be recognized tomorrow without much of a process, correct? That's right. And um, the big decision point for employers uh, on kind of a moving forward basis is how how much do you front load your positive employee trainings slash union avoidance, you know, trainings. And, you know, I, I think a lot more companies, particularly those like in, in the hotel industry or something like that, that has a larger union footprint. I think at the moment of hire, you're going to start now talking about you, you know, how we have a union free culture in this company and you're going to be addressing this head on, during the onboarding process after a hire Um, because, and I don't think that restaurants are there yet, but like you have to be much more proactive now with this stuff because by the time you find out that there's organizing happening in a store, it's going to be too late. You know, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be recognized essentially once they get a majority of workers and you've got to be much more proactive and front loading a lot of the stuff that, um, you know, historically, you've kind of done after, you know, organizing kind of bubbled up or even an election petition was filed. I just, I'm, I'm literally speechless. I don't even know what to say, man. It's, it's, it's a big, big deal. And to the world today doesn't, rec- doesn't look a whole lot like it did uh, just last week in this space. And so more, more to come. Uh, we'll have more news items probably coming out by the day in this space. And, uh, We'll see how the, the business community reacts this week and we're reporting on it to you in the next pod. Well, as our listeners know, we spent a lot of time in this podcast talking about what's going on in the alcohol space, restrictions on alcohol, alcohol sales, delivery, the evolving nature of it. We've been talking lately about what's going on in the world of boycotts and Bud Light. And it made sense to me to invite back to our podcast, an expert, not only uh, in that space, but an expert in this podcast, because Mr. Sean Kelly, you're the one that created this podcast, oh, 302 episodes ago. Welcome back, my friend. Oh, it's good to be back. This is, uh, this is like being invited back to meet the press, but you're, uh, David Gregory is the host. <laughs> he has he had a full head of hair. Um, for our listeners, Sean is now the executive vice president of operations and marketing for ABC Fine Wines and Spirits, which is a regional uh, retail player in the Southeast. Uh, Mr. Kelly, how many stores and how many employees does your company have now? So depending on the season, we'll normally range from 1,400 to 1,700. Uh, we've got 125 stores now. By the time we get to December, we'll probably be in the range of 128 to 130, all in Florida. So you're in charge of marketing. Look at your office right now. You have a beautiful 
oaken keg barrel in the back with a bunch <laughs> of bottles on top of it. If, there's, if that was in my office, they'd be tipped over empty bottles, full um, <laughs> bottles. So, so our, you know, alcohol is a big part of uh, what's going on inside of restaurants. We learned during the pandemic, the restaurant industry was super, super involved in cocktails to go and allowing cocktails to be delivered and wine to go and all this kind of stuff. You are at the front of consumer trends. What what do you see? You know, we we see in the newspaper over the last couple of weeks, and we've been seeing it for years now. Beer consumption, as a general rule, continues to trickle down. Spirits consumption is up. What are you seeing at the retail level that's important, not only as a as a as a as a leading retailer for beer, wine, and spirits, but if you were Sean Kelly Kelly's Bar and Grill. What, what are you learning in your space that is transferable to restaurant operators? Sure. I think it happened a little later to us, but what we we're definitely seeing now is uh, people are unwilling to spend as much on a single transaction. So the, in other words, the average basket has just come down and it mostly comes in terms of how many bottles are they willing to buy in each trip, which I would assume if you're if you're at a restaurant, maybe you don't get the dessert, maybe you don't get the appetizer, maybe you get a mid-level wine, um, as a, as opposed to going a little bit higher. I think we've seen it over the last two to three months in particular. Oftentimes, when we see gas prices adjust, uh, we'll see that type of behavior. Uh, but lately, it seems more tied to interest rates, credit card debt, uh, plenty of people in Florida who are paying student loans that they weren't expecting to have to pay anymore. So all of that's having an impact. Are you, uh, Sean, are you seeing, you know, uh, obviously you are seeing it, you're, you're in charge of it, but talk to me a little bit about the beer and, and why, why do you think beer is coming down as a percentage of the overall spend? What's happening out there among young people? What's, what's the demographic? Why, why aren't, young people drinking beer like their parents? What, what's going on there? I think there's a couple things happening right now. And the what a lot of people like to say in the moment is that Bud Light has um, a lot to do with it. I would argue that, and the, and the data shows this, this was playing out well before anything in that space. And I think most of it has to do with a more health conscientious, younger demographic. Um, who has just decided that either they don't want, like the way beer makes them feel, they are measuring calorie counts, whether they're accurate or not, but I think that plays a, a role. Um, but mostly I think this with these ready-to-drink cocktails, there is an inexpensive, lower-calorie way of getting the same outcome. I think younger people also, you know, they'll go out for longer stretches of time, the alcohol content itself is a little bit lower in a lot of these, just depending on which ones you're drinking. So uh, I think all of that ends up playing a role. What's also interesting is that a younger demographic also tends to, for whatever reason, be willing to spend more on spirits. Whereas I think, Joe, you and I were more, you know, a case of Natty Light was just fine. A younger demographic, for whatever reason, is willing to spend more on a bottle of tequila. I, I'm I'm constantly amazed by what younger demographic is willing to spend precious income, you know, food delivery at twice the cost of it in the restaurant, you know, 
you know, seven dollar cups of frappuccino. <laughs> it's like what I'm, I'm constantly amazed, you know, at, at what young people spend their money on. But uh, I have two young people in my life, and I just watch money fly out of their or slash my <laughs> pocket at an unbelievable rate. Um, Sean, you brought up Bud Light, so let's talk a little bit about that. And there's been some stuff in the papers the last week or so that that's starting to level out a little bit that people are returning to it. It's kind of that the dust is kind of settling on that fracas a little bit. Were you seeing like you're, you're with consumers every day, you're right across the counter. How did that play out for, for you all? What was your experience with the Bud Light boycott? Our experience was, it caught us off guard as well. Um, I think what we initially concerned about was um, the number of guests coming in who were frustrated that we were still selling it. So we heard some noise about that. Most of that has just settled down, uh, but the data doesn't lie. And the data is showing us that, um, you know, consumers have clearly voted with their, um, their purchasing power. So you know, we're just not seeing the volume on Bud Light like we were. And, you know, yes, it has leveled out. I was looking at some reporting on that today, but it's still where it's leveled out is still a major, major hit. Yeah. And again, I'm, I, you know, I tend to be super cynical, though. The Bud Light, the, the scope of it really fascinated me. I mean, the, the people that are participating, you know, in these you know, the Bud Light boycott in particular, um, you know, are not, you know, as a general rule, stereotyping, they're not being recruited by Mensa, right? And, you know, I, I think that whole, that whole politics of grievance tends to be fickle in nature and transactional. I think a lot of them will come back. I, I guarantee you half those people that boycotted Bud Light switched to another beer they didn't know was owned by Anheuser-Busch. You know what I mean? I, it just, I find the whole thing super fascinating. What was the conversation between you and distributors? I mean, were distributors, you know dumping stuff on your back porch, you know, were they giving you deep discounts? I mean, how, how was that, how did it affect the relationship with you and your distributors? Um, well, I think the part that I could talk about um, publicly is, is uh, more or less, you know, when you, you the longer you do this business, the, the stronger the partnerships are with your suppliers and wholesalers. And so if you're a retailer or even if you're or if you're a restaurant and you've seen the same guy dropping off your beer uh, every week, every month for for years, you have to recognize and sympathize for the person who is having to deal with this because of no fault of his or her own. So I don't uh, you know, in terms of the, the back and forth, there's not a whole lot I can get into on that, but. I think, you know, everyone's just trying to do the best they can to get through this. Um, and in the meantime, as a business, you have to turn to, well, what is selling? And so you look at Modelo, you look at some of these other brands that are doing well, and you, you know, you try to thrive there. Uh, but, you know, the beer business as a whole is a lot thinner than it used to be. And you can walk into our store or you can walk into any restaurant bar and look over. You see a lot fewer bottle tops. And now you see the tops of a high noon, a truly a white claw kettle one, whatever it is. Right. So Sean, let me, let me, let me, let me pivot a little bit to the delivery space and the delivery space looks a little bit different uh, for retailers like yourself than it does for uh, restaurant owners and operators. But 
what impact has the delivery phenomenon, I guess, for lack of a better term, had on the business? Is it is it increasing sales? Is it decreasing sales? Is it a wash? Is it driving up your car? Like what's, how do you all look at the world of delivery? I mean, it's not going away. It's here, right? And, and more importantly, over the next couple of years, where do you see that space going? How is it, is it driving buying decisions and will it in the future? So let me try to break up the question. On the volume side, I think we, uh, we, we see incremental value to it. So there is a get there is a consumer that only wants delivery. Um, they don't they're they're busy. They don't want to leave the house. There's any number of reasons why they only want delivery. COVID certainly uh, provided delivery this meteoric rise in popularity. But then once COVID started to die down, you saw it dwindle uh, by a lot. Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to see it creep up again. And I don't think it has anything to do with the latest number of cases of COVID. I think it has more to do with some of the big players who are in the space who are doing it very well, whether it's DoorDash, Instacart, Uber Eats. And what some of these companies are doing, they're, they're white labeling this to make it a little bit more um, profitable for the companies that they're partnering with. In terms of where I see it going, I think there is going to be some consolidation I, uh, at the end of the day, it's got to work for both sides. So if I'm a restaurant and this is, this has been playing out for years now, it is so costly that sooner or later, the prices are going to have to come up. You just can't keep giving all the profits away. Um, and I think slowly, but surely the, the third party delivery companies are seeing that they understand it. I know the partners I work with, you know, it comes up on every conversation and they, they understand what's going on. So I think what's going to happen is more of the costs are going to be passed on to the consumer. You know, my hope for the restaurant uh, businesses is that they can find a way to bring it more in-house to get people back into the restaurants, because I would hate to see delivery continue to hurt their businesses. Yes, they might get volume, but boy, is it expensive. Yeah, it's it's kind of pick your poison. I mean, you, you think about what's happened in the wage space the last five years in terms of wage inflation, and you think, you know, if we're going to do delivery, you know, if I'm company X, you know, do I have employees that are doing it with my specs since I can control my brand and my product? And the costs of doing that are outpacing the costs of outsourcing it even though the cost of outsourcing it is skyrocketing as well, it's skyrocketing less <laughs> than, than the wage piece, you know? And so they're caught in this, this, this rip current where they're, they're, their margins are just eroding from both sides, like a, like a sandcastle just kind of eroding out on the beach. They get eaten alive on the wage side and eaten alive on the, on the service side. It, it, you're right. It's, it's got to come to a, a critical point. Uh, Sean has nothing to do with, with alcohol, but, I used this example on, on the pod a few weeks ago. My daughter got a chicken sandwich to go from a fine chicken outlet, Chick-fil-A. Um, mm -hmm. she, she ordered Chick-fil-A and it was delivered by a third party. And by the time, it was, it was, whatever she ordered, the drink, blah, 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 was like, it was like $9.20. By the time it got to the house, it was $21. You know, and it's okay. like, and I, of course, after my aneurysm, yeah. I clean the living room back up. <laughs> and you say, 20, that sandwich better be delicious. <laughs> it's been 21 bucks <laughs> on, a, on a chicken sandwich. And we 
had a little uh, come to come to Jesus on that conversation. But um, I, I, you know, at a certain point, it's just it's just not it's not it's not feasible anymore. And I'm I'm worried that an entire generation is growing up where delivery is now part of it. I mean, you know, listen, I tell you how old I am. I never I could I still can't believe that you know 20 years ago people were going to pay ungodly amounts of money a month to have a cell phone. You know, like how do these kids, how do these 20 year olds, and here we are, you know, in 2023 and like, you can't live without, you know, cell phone, huge chunk gone out of disposable income. You know, the modern technology is, is, has, has done a lot for convenience, but boy, it is, it is eroded financial buying power of the people it's helping and delivery is one of them. My, my kids think delivery first, you know, they just, they think delivery first. You know, your, your podcast listeners in the restaurant space, I'm sure a lot of them have looked at, well, do we just go ahead and do this in-house? Um, you know, they probably determine how many orders are we getting? If we, if we own delivery, uh, we can make it work. The cost of doing that alone is really high. So you're paying, you're paying for an employee that you have to be able to trust to use a company car. There's the liability of it all. But I think one of the things we experience most of all is and the third-party delivery companies are really good at this, it's the interaction between the guest. So let's say somebody places an order from a local restaurant and it includes a craft cocktail. That delivery driver has to go to the house, ring the doorbell. Let's say the person's in the backyard at the pool and they don't come to the door right away. What do they do? They got to bring it back to the restaurant. Do they call? If you're not equipped from a technology standpoint, which is incredibly expensive, to communicate with the guest and say, Hey, I'm here. You're at, you're losing dollars there as well. So it's, you know, it's, it's not quite a money pit, but it's, it's kind of hovering around there. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, you know, nothing stays the same like change in, in restaurant operators and retailers like yourselves, but restaurant operators are always having to adapt to a new, a new world order. It seems like every couple of years is a whole new world order. And this delivery space has turned the model uh, upside down. Yeah. Well, Sean, um, I do appreciate it. I know you're busy, uh, but it's fun to talk with you, talk to the, it's like, you know, it's like you're staying in a hotel that you built with your own hands, right? This is, this is your <laughs> podcast. So you built this thing. Um, I appreciate Joe that you have kept this thing going. You didn't allow Franklin to tear it down. Uh, so that's a win. You know, it, it is interesting that, 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 um, this podcast has survived Franklin's malicious assault on the English language for all these years. Um, but, um, no, it's, 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 it's a labor of love. I love doing it. And, um, uh, appreciate, appreciate. If you, all if you ever, if you ever need them, I still, I still maintain some audio clips from Joe Renzel, Franklin, <laughs> <laughs> any number of the, early weaker years of the podcast <laughs> and the you can use that against us at some point in, in a court of law so all right my friend well you're you're the best get back to selling um selling your stuff i i noticed the other night that i was uh, in depletion mode so i'll be making a visit to my local uh, abc fine wines and spirits here in the next few days um but uh i do appreciate you thanks for your time you're the best I appreciate I'm talking it. good luck joe thanks It's time for Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, uh, the wage space is jumping, my friend. Uh, things going on in Minnesota statewide, Minneapolis for Lyft drivers, Montgomery County, Maryland, Evanston, Illinois, Chicago. A lot of energy in the wage space. 
Yeah, it's worth noting too. There was a big Wall Street Journal piece on uh, the tipped wage this this last week, which led to a big like CNN piece on the on the tipped wage. There was market press, as you just mentioned, Joe, all across the country. One fair wage is getting really aggressive on their kind of public affairs comm side of this, and uh, we're getting a lot more attention uh, to the tipped wage issue. So. In, in Minnesota, kicking off there, Joe, um, we just had an automatic escalation there. The minimum wage will increase by 2.5%. That's, that's the news out of Minnesota. The next, uh, the next two that we would flag for your Montgomery County and Evanston. So these are two of the tipped wage markets of many markets that we now have issues bubbling in. In Montgomery County, we're expected that we're going to have legislation introduced to eliminate the tip credit um, anytime now, basically. The indication from the sponsor is that it will phase out incrementally. I, I think, Joe, following kind of the, the D.C. model, but you can do do a correction uh, on me on that. But it would raise the tips wage with a bump to $4 an hour, then $8 in July of next year. Those are steep increases. And then it would calm down a little bit. It'd be followed by $2 an hour yearly increases until 2028. So the the tipped wage in Maryland is 3.63 and the minimum wage is 13.25. So that's a massive, massive gap that, um, you know, we're going to see Montgomery County wrestling with it. We could see it spill over to PG County. We had activity at the state level on this issue last year. And we kind of dodged a bullet, but the the surest way to like put it back into the statewide dialogue is to have a bunch of municipalities doing stuff. So that's why Montgomery County and PG County are important coming out of what happened in DC. And then uh, speaking of neighboring jurisdictions, obviously we've got the the process underway in Chicago, but neighbor, neighboring Evanston, uh, your friend Saru showed up in Evanston last week uh, advocating for tip credit elimination there. And all but promising that Chicago was going to approve the elimination of the tipped wage on October 4th. Not only, Joe, did she did she promise it's going to pass, she gave a date certain on the record while testifying. And essentially, she was chiding Eviston that they needed to get on board and follow Chicago where they were going to have this... Uh, this uh, flow of jobs out of their market into uh, Chicago. So she was doing a little chest poking in, uh, in Evanston. Um, the Evanston proposal yeah, is very similar to the Chicago proposal. Um, it does have a split between small and large employers, four to 50 employees. It would establish a minimum wage of 1550. And then, uh, 1625 for larger employers. So that's 51 up. And then it's currently in track with the Cook County wage, but essentially it would just eliminate the, the tip credit over time. So this thing was tabled, right? Isn't that right, Joe? It was, yeah, I think it's it been tabled for, for about a month that they, they, they come back in, in late September for their next meeting. So, so if something gets over the finish line in Chicago, I can expect that, Miss Saru will be right back doing chest poking again. Um, so that's it from uh, 
from the windy from the windy area, uh, the last thing in wages, yo, Minneapolis, the mayor vetoed the ordinance that would have established a guaranteed minimum wage for Uber and Lyft drivers. As we reported last week, it passed the city council with not enough votes to override a veto. So there's a good chance this kind of puts this into limbo. This follows kind of very similar action at the state level where something was muscled over the finish line. Essentially, the governor vetoed as well. So um, now the governor or excuse me, the mayor, I think, has indicated that he'd like to see action in this. He just doesn't like this approach. So I think it's probably going to. But he cut a side deal. I thought it was pretty interesting. He cut a side deal with Uber, uh, left lift out of it. And, and Uber and the mayor agreed on a sidebar to to uh, a pay and, pay and benefit regimen. Talking about a power play, man. He just he just dismissed the city council essentially, which I thought was pretty super super interesting. Franklin, uh, talk about a power play. The state of New Jersey slapped Boston Market pretty hard, man. Twenty seven locations said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, we got we got some problems, folks. What's going on in New Jersey?" Yeah, twenty seven locations, a bunch of wage related violations. So let me read them off. Unpaid or late wages, hindrance of the investigation. Wow, that's that's not a good one. Failure to pay minimum wage, record violations, failure to pay earned sick leave, failure to maintain records for earned sick leave. Employer owes more than uh, 600000 in back wages to 314 workers and more than $1.2 in liquidated damages. That is uh, it's hefty. Um, and I, I think that's going to put you in the top of the, the watch list for New Jersey regulators on a going forward basis and probably maybe even a couple other states. So, yeah, that's that's bad that, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but that looks like more than just a, uh, a miscalculation error in the software. Um, it looks like there's something probably deeper at play there. Franklin, uh, switching to this great state of Wisconsin, the dairy state, um, who will soon be raiding daycare centers and elementary schools for employees, uh, wants to get rid of work permits and permissions for 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds in the name of the labor crunch. What the hell's going on up there? Yeah, current law, you have to have a work permit or parental permission if you're 14 or 15 years old to work in in Wisconsin. So they're looking to kind of revoke this, this. So if the bill is to pass, the governor is probably going to going to hammer it down. This is separate and apart, Joe. There's legislation that would allow 14-year-olds to serve alcohol in bars and restaurants too. 14. Um, Come on, man. Yeah, this is Come reputationally on. this is uh probably for us. All it takes is one one single episode where something bad happens, a burn or, you know, 14-year-olds serving alcohol to other 14-year-olds, or it takes just one episode here, and it's just, it's not good. It's just not good space. So I understand the the workforce-related pressures. I get that. But this is reputationally is, is kind of quicksand. Yeah. So enough of that. Franklin, New York City, not to be outdone by their neighbors across the river in New Jersey, they just passed out uh, – Big old piles of fines to some rest, some notable restaurants as well. The New York City Fair Work Week law continues to claim victims and scalps. We know that it's a record-keeping nightmare that that law is 
super problematic and, and hard to comply with. And the record keeping uh, requirements are, are quite frankly, outrageous, um, just boxes and boxes. But you gotta you gotta be on your A game because they're they're looking for folks. Chipotle was was the the latest prior to this big announcement of a big brand in the news over this issue. And it was a whopping amount that they owed. I can't remember off the top of my head, Joe, but it was it was millions, I'm I'm thinking. Um now we have some more folks in the mix. Panda Express, uh Alban Pan, and then 7-Eleven. What's 7-Eleven raise the roost? Um, I guess that's that's their their restaurant side. Anyway, they're all getting getting nailed on this, and they're all differing amounts and civil penalties, but Look, you got to be in compliance with this. I know it's tough, but they're gonna they're they're hunting folks down. Franklin, while Saru uh, uh, was busy in Chicago and in Evanston and taking a victory lap in Chicago this week on what's going on there legislatively, she took a big loss in the court of law. Uh, federal judge in California said, "Nah, you can't sue. You can't, stop suing Darden. You don't have standing." Yeah, there's a number of lawsuits. <clears throat> they've pursued over the years. Um, this one was a discrimination one against female and minority servers. Um, going back to Saru, Jay Raman's time at the Restaurant Opportunity Center, suing Darden has been a pastime. So this is just one of a bunch of lawsuits they've thrown up over the years, and it has not stuck even in the friendly confines of uh, California. Yeah, so kudos Kudos to uh, to Darden for uh, winning again uh, in, in the court of law against one fair wage, but I'm sure the attacks will continue. Speaking of another brand getting attacked, Franklin, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission went after Hooters last week. Yeah, and remember, we have a fully uh, seated uh, Democrat majority of the EEOC now, and so we haven't seen a lot of activity out of the EEOC, but we're probably going to be reporting a lot more in the in the coming months and, and even years here. So yes, the allegation here is that Hooters, when they brought back employees after a COVID related layoff, um, that they essentially discriminated against black or uh, workers that had darker skin tones. And so North Carolina uh, location and uh, the complaint here is that they selectively brought back certain Hooters girls with race being kind of a factor. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Never, never dull moment in, in, the, in that space, man. You're right. To, to put it in the context of a fully robust EEOC now, uh, we're probably going to start seeing a lot, lot more of that. Uh, Franklin, talk about a, a gap in time. Uh, the, early this spring, uh, Delaware legislature sent to the governor uh, basically a styrofoam ban, for lack of a better term. And uh, he finally signed it in the last week of August. I don't know what took six months to sign the darn thing, but we got a new law in Delaware. We got a new law in, in Delaware prohibiting fast food establishments from giving customers beverages or ready to eat uh, food in uh, styrofoam, single-use plastic, stirs, picks, et cetera, will also be prohibited straws and requests by request only. Last thing in that space too, and we'll probably report on this next week, but the Enviros have turned on paper straws as well now. And so paper straws typically are sealed with a coating 
that is like uh, the 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 PFAS. You know, it's a forever chemical. Um, otherwise, they just disintegrate within ten seconds. So, uh, bamboo and paper straws are now under the uh, under the microscope. The one thing to watch there is there's a lot of paper products in restaurants that have coatings, not just straws. And so, the straws being under under assault now could be the the first step in some of these other these paper products that were the solution to foam now facing greater scrutiny across the board. So this may be the next evolution in the uh, in the Enviro's focus on kind of single use items. Yeah, I saw that so same saw that same uh, body of reporting last week on that. I thought it was super interesting that uh, now even the the paper straws are the, the replacements for the the plastic and styrofoam are now being caught called into question so never never dull moment in the packaging space well, franklin that was a pretty quick scorecard i mean last week of august you know labor day coming up but uh still still a lot going on especially in the wage uh space and we'll have more for you next week well my friend another week another pod but uh you and i talked last week about the impending republican debate on wednesday and that debate has come and gone. Franklin, I'm sure you watched, took copious notes, probably replayed it three or four times, read all the coverage after it. What was your take on the debate itself? Was it a good debate? Was it a lousy debate? And who prevailed? So I couldn't watch it because uh, I had a client dinner. So I had to listen to the second half on the radio. And I've probably Democrat and Republican debates over the past 15 or 20, 25 years, I probably watched 90% of them, watched or listened to 90% of them. And watching them with a group versus watching them alone on TV versus listening to them on the radio, you will have different takeaways. And so, um, so I didn't immediately trust my takeaways. And I called people right after um, I listened to it. And I was like, you know what? I think DeSantis is not going to get credit for how well he did. He was the front runner on the stage and essentially went unmolested the entire night. And if you were a DeSantis supporter or leaner and you're like watching DeSantis and there's a, a, a large viewership, particularly in places like Iowa, then not only were you proud, you, you did not head hold your head in shame at all. He did pretty well. You know, if you looked at him in isolation, most of the, uh, of the coverage coming out was obviously the exchanges between Christy Haley and, you know, that drew most of the attention and that was most of the cable coverage afterwards. I think Haley obviously got a bump Vivek got a bump. There's a couple other bumps, but I think the initial polling is showing that DeSantis got a, 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 a sneaky bump and, the Des Moines Register before, look, this is not a national election. Everybody's looking at national polling. It's not a national election. It's a state by state. It's not even an election. It's a caucus. And in some states, it's a primary election. They're different than national elections, certainly. The Des Moines Register, probably one of the most reliable polls in the country, has DeSantis in striking distance of Trump before the debate. It's like nine points. And the first poll out of the debate was a Washington Post poll had DeSantis within the margin of error in Iowa and basically getting the larger bump um, out of the field, out of the debate. So anyway, it's a long way to answer your question, Joe. 
But um, I felt that that there were a number of people that did well. A number of people will benefit from it. I think DeSantis is the one that no one's expecting to really benefit from it that will probably get a bump out of it. And he's obviously he's the you know, he's the number two. He's the he was the front runner in stage. And so I think that was the surprising that was a surprising takeaway for me. And I think at least the initial numbers indicate that maybe I'm not an idiot, but we'll we'll see. We'll see how that plays out over time. It's funny you mentioned the, uh, uh, listening to it on the radio, Franklin. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna name drop, uh, but I listened to one of the George W. Bush Al Gore debates on radio. I was coming from a fundraiser that we had put on at Wendy's CEO founder Dave Thomas's house in South Florida, and I was driving back to Orlando and I was listening to that, and I've. I'll never forget it because you could tell you weren't you weren't um, distracted by the bells and the whistles and the ties and all that kind of stuff. And I remember specifically Al Gore constantly sighing, like in, in frustration. And Bush would say something, and Al Gore would go, ah. and it's like you probably didn't pick it up on the TV version, like the live version, but you certainly could pick it up on radio. And I knew he was just getting crushed. <laughs> That's, a big, That's how it turned out. But uh, I'll never forget. And it's an interesting way to listen to a debate is kind of take the visuals out and, and really listen. It was, uh, I'll, I'll never forget. It's, you know, 20, 23 years ago. And I still, I still remember it like it was yesterday. But uh, I'm sure there'll be many more to come. Franklin had something like 14 million viewers. All right. Well, on that note, we will sign off and talk to everybody next time. Until then, stay safe, stay informed. We'll talk to you next week. 